I think like a lot of things we do to create a better life for everyone on this planet is just not going to happen just by our scientific understanding of the world. I think there's just a huge social dimension that's mostly the bottleneck. This is the Livable Future Podcast. I'm co-creator Katie Barker, and in today's episode, I sit down with PhD student Xu Kuang to talk about a common narrative that we have in agricultural research and why that narrative might need to be challenged. I would like to begin this episode by acknowledging that we are creating this podcast on lands that were the traditional and ancestral homelands of the Ute, Arapaho, and Cheyenne peoples. We would like to honor these people and their contributions to this region. First, would you begin by telling us your scientist origin story? Well, I think it, for me, kind of all started while I was studying abroad in Thailand. Um, I was on this program during college. It was like a sustainability-themed and sustainability-oriented and as part of that, we had like few field courses where we went around and sort of, you know, backpacked around or like kayaked around and kind of learned from sort of the local communities. Um, and, you know, did our own interview in Thai and everything, which was super cool. But yeah, before that, I wasn't really interested in soils, which is what I study now. But yeah, one day we were doing this soils activity in this village. The goal was to just to kind of dig a handful of soil from different kind of farming systems and compare them. And I was like super bored. And you know, like you, we went to like the annual corn farm and dig up soil and it was like super degraded, like super dry. And at the end of the day, that day we went into this agroforest that someone had started like 10 years ago. And then there we, dug up like a handful of soil and then like something about that and like very we got you know very kind of rich dark soil uh, that just felt different and you know, felt healthy and you know all of us were just kind of like our group was just like standing around in the hall and I think it's kind of that moment that I was like oh shit you know soil can be really cool and yeah and after that I kind of gotten interested in kind of intersection of agriculture and soil and that's what brought me here that's pretty cool yeah there's really nothing like seeing the differences there so you recently wrote about the dangers of this thing that you called the scarcity axiom first of all what exactly is that what do you mean by that well, let's start with scarcity narrative, which is what in, like, I see a lot in agriculture, at least, is this structure where we try to kind of introduce our science and kind of relate our science to broader 
audience by saying, oh, you know, population is growing. We have to keep up our like food production to kind of continue to feed the world. And here is why my research can support like continued food production. And, you know, that depends on food being scarce. And when we say that over and over and that, you know, that when that becomes sort of unquestioned statement, that's when I think it becomes like a scarcity axiom when people don't question it because we say it so much. And that kind of that's where our argument begins. Um, we, we don't have to back that up with much. And yeah, because we say so much, it became, becomes ingrained in the public's eyes. And when that happens, we tend to use it more because, oh, the public knows that we are running out of food. Um, let me just say this as a kind of point of departure when I talk to the public. And that's a really old narrative that's been going on. Like Soylent Green is about that. All of yeah. this, it's been going on uh, since right before the Green Revolution, right? I mean, Malthus was writing about it um, in England way back when. So yeah, it's a really, really, really old notion. And you think that right now the narrative continues to be focused on let's keep upgrading our production? It kind of depends, I think. I think there is a, now there is a huge sort of environmental effect side that's introduced to the conversation, talking about all these downsides of the way we do agriculture now. But I think still, even then, the conversation is about we still need to produce certain amount of food to feed the world. How do we do that? How do we create that much food without, you know, polluting the water, for example? So I think the conversation is still very much focused around, yeah, how do we kind of tech our way through this? Or in a more like systems perspective, how do we create more sustainable systems to create more food then? I think that's kind of the implied assumptions in many of the research going on right now. So what is the danger with this axiom? I think the thing can be summed up as like when we talk about scarcity axiom and stop kind of questioning it, we very much kind of simplify what scarcity is in the modern world and how it comes to be, you know, because scarcity as it's experienced now, it's mostly artificially generated. It's about, it, you know, it has a huge kind of social and economic origins more than production side uh, of things. So when we start talking about scarcity as this kind of immovable fact, we start to erase those things. And, you know, it's scarcity is generated to serve some kind of purpose. And when we try to make that scarcity as a just a fact of, you know, human civilization, then we also um, start to ignore 
why scarcity is generated and how it's enforced. So I think that's the biggest danger. So we ignore how we got there and we just say, oh, everything is scarce, like natural resources are scarce. Right. Um, for example, you know, I mean, I think of most scarcity in terms of food just because it's most visceral to me. Um, and also because I'm in agricultural stuff. <laughs> and, you know, food shortages is so funny to me because it is so apparent that we do generate and produce enough food to feed everyone in this country and around the world but people are still going hungry and people can still experience famines so yeah i think when we say when we kind of lean on scarcity axiom the narrative becomes oh of course we are ex we experience scarcity and the human population is always growing and food can follow up, um, then we kind of start to ignore, well, we do have enough food now, but why are some people still going hungry? Right. It's like we're trying to solve the wrong problem. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, like the common number that goes around, especially in the U.S., is that 40% of all food that are you know, created go to waste. Um, and I'm sure some of it is not necessarily salvageable. You know, they're, you know, in such a huge system, there's going to be some laws. Um, but then the, you know, it can't be all 40%. <laughs> some of it, you know, is being wasted due to the huge, like, swath of people who cannot pay for food. And we have an economic system where it makes more sense to bar certain people from accessing um, food that instead going to the landfills. Yeah, nothing is 100% efficient, right. but you would hope for a higher number than 60% efficiency <laughs> in any system. So that is definitely, yeah, it, that's the number that always gets me to. So this sort of aspect of access to resources reminds me also of another thing that you wrote about, which is the population crisis. And this one is really important to me also because I feel like I hear this a lot in academia and in other like environmentally conscious groups where people start talking about population and the population crisis and that population is just skyrocketing and we need to limit our growth. But I kind of hate this argument because I think ultimately it also becomes a question of who has the right to have babies. And it can quickly get into racist colonial ideas and quickly jump to the conclusions of, well, we're productive members of society and you aren't. And nobody seems to stop and think about how people don't use up the same number of resources everywhere. The privileged members of society have a much larger impact yeah, definitely. I think 
that, um, you know, like when we have scarcity axiom, that's like, oh, population is growing, we got to keep up food production. Then one part of that argument is that population is growing and that's a problem. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that when people say population is growing, they are implicitly kind of saying, um, you know, there's like a quotation around population. They're talking about like all these um, four people, all these like kind of people from global south are, you know, just like really, you know, the population is increasing. Um, and us from the quote unquote civilized society where we have like a little more stable population growth, you know, like have to, you know, look at that as a crisis. And, you know, from that alone, you kind of build up this art, um, narrative where these people who have kind of least amount of access to resources become this villain right um and you know like the people who are in quote-unquote first world um developed countries become sort of the saviors which is you know like we you have to sort of think about well you i think that population growth in itself is not something that you can be specifically worried about um, without getting down some really morally treacherous road, but also in that argument and villainization of different population of people, I think you have to also consider sort of the historical and colonial aspect of what has happened to those quote-unquote third world countries. Yeah, it's sort of, we need almost the opposite approach where right now we're considering scarcity as just like a fact of life and nothing that <laughs> needs to be addressed systemically. But then we're considering population growth as a crisis, a problem that we need to fix instead of just a fact of life. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, as a, I don't know much about, population dynamics to be able to speak on that specifically. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'll just say that I have seen even from like very, you know, highly regarded funding agencies that studies agricultural systems, you know, they're like, oh, this population is increasing and we're gonna hit just like whatever billions of people by um, 20s, I don't know, 50 or whatever. And then like background slide images, just like a busy street in China for some reason, right? And that's, you know, like, I think that is very thinly veiled. <laughs> um, right, why that city? Yeah, it's China. like, why, yeah. Why, why are you doing that? Yeah, it's exactly. Um, yeah. When you could just as easily show London or Denver. Yeah, we're just, show, yeah. yeah, just show the graph or something. I don't or, know. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or LA, I don't know. Um, so yeah, I think that just like a lot of people do that and without even thinking about it and like without kind of thinking about what that kind of does to our mind implicitly, um, which is kind of troublesome, you know, in, in a more 
I don't know, in broader context, people need to be aware of how they use imageries. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You made the really good point that scientists are actually also storytellers. We have to, we're in charge of translating raw data into something that we can understand, which means that we also have the responsibility of storytellers of what story are we telling? Yeah, I think that's one of the most exciting part that I figured out while I was like got into academia. I was like, oh, you know, I always wanted to be an author, right? I wanted to be a writer growing up. And then I was like, oh, this is like writing, but I just have to do like, there's just a lot of labor overhead before I can actually get to writing. <laughs> that's kind of the only difference. Not to mention you have to back up every single sentence with <laughs> yeah, exactly. sources and yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. I was a writer actually before. Yeah. Um, not of books, but that was a goal. Yeah. Here we are. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you think we could shift we need to start with why does what we do matter? And we need to communicate that to the public and say, hey, we're not just, you know, wasting your taxpayer dollars and whatnot playing around in a lab. We're actually doing something that's important. How do we do that? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Big question. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, when I first wrote it, um, there was like a huge kind of positive reaction from the people and one of the questions was like, you know, like you pointed out this problem that, you know, a lot of people, it seemed to resonate with a lot of people, but then how do we move forward? <laughs> oh, excuse me. Then, yeah. And I think that's obviously a harder question to answer. I think it's easier for me to point out a problem than it's to like figure out how to solve it. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not that anyone's expecting to solve a problem single-handed but i've been thinking a lot so that's to say i've been thinking a lot about it ever since i've uh ever, ever since i wrote that essay and i think they're sort of multi-tiered approach in terms of how radical of a change we are willing to give to how we generate knowledge and how academia functions because I think that the most minor change you can make is to be like, you know, when, I, when we start talking about our science, we can talk about how, you know, hunger is mostly caused by non-production issues, but still we use a whole lot of energy and resources and there's a lot of different things that go wrong in generating the food that we do make and that kind of food produced uh, like the harm done per unit of food i think is still a valid argument to make right because even if we were to descale our food production system to just meet the need of the population, I think the question still remains, can we do that sustainably and without kind of ruining the whole ecology of the planet? And 
I think that's still a fascinating question, and I think we can communicate that pretty well. And I think that that is like the yeah one of the alternate ways we can talk about our science. And I think if we wanted to be more kind of radical, I think we have to actively actively presuppose a post scarcity world and post capitalist world in our science where if we were living in a society you know like decades from now or like centuries from now where every food every like ounce of food we produce and every ounce of resources we have are you know justly distributed then what kind of problem are we going to have if we were to keep up this method of ex resource extraction and how do we solve that within that context where we are actively preparing for a better world to come rather than trying to mitigate kind of the unjust systems that we have right now and kind of prolong its life, I guess. So what would you say to non-scientists or people who don't identify as scientists that may be listening to this? I think people have to be cognizant of sort of the power dynamics that are embedded within any conversations about resource, right? Or like the use of natural land in terms of like, you know, growing food and stuff like that. When you say there is a problem, right? How does that problem problem come to be and how like what other aspects are there to the problems that they're describing other than the solution that they're suggesting? Um, I think it's like something that you have to kind of look out for, you know, when you think about, oh, there's like a freshwater shortage, you know, like, and here is say, let's say there's a paper about, oh, here is some technology that can filter wastewater in a this really cheap way. And here's our findings about it. Um, you have to ask why are they out of fresh water and like who actually has access to fresh water then and who doesn't, you know, and do anyone benefit from some people not having fresh water or just like do people use more fresh water? Some people use more fresh water than others. And I think um, that kind of question has to be asked also by the scientists, but also by the people who consume kind of what scientists are having to say. So kind of looking past just like, okay, cool solution to a problem, but also what was the cause of that problem to begin with? Right. And I think you can also think about in a, more in a kind of reverse way where you're like, okay, so let's say we apply this solution. Will that problem be fixed, right? And I think most scientists will just play it safe and say no, because I think people are, are aware that what they're doing isn't a silver bullet. But 
often we are pressured to present it like it is a silver bullet just because that's kind of how we up our research game and get attention and get funding. But, you know, it is scientists' job to notice that it is not a silver bullet and communicate that and its audience audience, audience can encourage that behavior by kind of questioning that further. What trends do you see that give you hope? I think I see most hopeful things in more personal and kind of localized context. You know, I think there's a lot of good labor organizing happening and mutual aid organizing happening around the world. You know, which is, I think, kind of the foundations upon like the more like a bigger systemic changes are you know built so yeah i'll say that that stuff kind of gives me hope that was episode 10 of the livable future podcast thanks for tuning in you'll check out some further reading on our website. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon.